Um, welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is Living in the Gray, Beyond Good and Evil. I am Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone, here again with my colleague, Rabbi Lindsay Healy-Pollock. Great to be with you again. Great to be here with you again. It's been a couple of weeks. Yep. And for our ninth episode, we're going to answer the question of the month, talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode, and then turn to our main topic, Living in the Gray, Beyond Good and Evil. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we will dust off one or two of our favorites from the distant past. But first, this month's She'ela, who is your favorite misunderstood villain from sci-fi or fantasy? Why don't you go first? So for me, the choice that popped immediately into my mind was Magneto from X-Men, who we were talking a little bit about last time with upcoming sci-fi and fantasy news. I always resonated with Magneto and his story, and he has a backstory that gives him a plausible reason for understanding why he took the path that he did, why he becomes a villain. It's understandable why he takes a different approach to things as compared to Professor X. So it's one thing that I really appreciate in my villains is having a good backstory, having them be a more well-developed, well-rounded character. Magneto is a survivor of the Shoah. He uses his powers to bend metal and first hones and discovers them when he is held in Auschwitz and takes on a different approach to how mutants should relate to the surrounding society based on his own personal experiences. So yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm like, find myself in some of those movies and storylines kind of rooting for Magneto a little bit. What about you? I just watched the end of Loki season two, thinking about Loki as the misunderstood villain. The TV show kind of picks up. The Loki, right after the Battle of New York, is captured by the Time Variance Authority and kind of pulled out of what's about to be this branching timeline and he is dealt with. But the Loki, up to that point, he's like the less loved son of Odin, always competing with Thor, trying to prove to his daddy that he is really the superior son. He's just full of himself, thinks he's going to be, you know, ruler of some mass of people and rule with, in his own words, glorious purpose. And he's taken down in the Battle of New York. And he's just this power-driven, power-hungry, you know, mischievous miscreant who's just, you know, the worst. But in the Loki show, and I will not spoil everything, at least not yet, (laughs) immediately is shown, this is your life. And he's shown everything that's going to happen in his life, everything that's happened up to that point. And he kind of realizes how pathetic he is. And he does Teshuvah. He actually does change who he is. Hmm. And to understand his drive for power comes from basically how how unloved, alone, and empty he feels. And he basically tries to channel that into a much better way in Loki season two. So I think that the show Loki kind of reframes all of his shenanigans 
and the MCU um, in a much more three-dimensional, emotionally deprived way. He actually is a three-dimensional character. You know, like in Thor Ragnarok, you know, I'm thinking movies only, not comics. I don't read the comics. You know, the glimmers of him getting better, but Thor just kind of says, I'm me and you're you. I'm going to do this. And you're always going to do this. And you're kind of like stuck in this cycle of fate where you're always going to be you doing the thing and always losing. And I will always win because I am Thor and because you are Loki. Much like he really changes his fate and he makes different decisions. I thought that was a much more compelling individual in general. So Loki's my favorite mm-hmm. this month. And for our listeners, who is your favorite misunderstood villain from sci-fi or fantasy? Um, you could even say Sauron and make the case. Um, email us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. Make your pitch for Soren being a misunderstood fallen deity. If you want. <laughs> if someone can come up with an argument that is more convincing to us than the one we pitched, then I we'd bet love Tolkien, to hear it. I bet Tolkien could do it. So, Lindsay, what have you been watching or reading lately? So, most recently, I saw the movie The Marvels with my family just this past Saturday night, because now Shabbat is ending super early where we are. So we can do things like go to movies, even though I have kids that have reasonably early bedtime still. So we went to see the marble, the marbles. I keep saying the marbles because that's what my daughter calls it. (laughs) The marbles. Um, (laughs) And uh, really enjoyed it. Not fully immersed in Captain Marvel's story. So it was sort of dropping in. But I have some familiarity with the characters. Really enjoyed it. It was a very fun movie. They introduced Ms. Mom and Monica, who Miss Marvel keeps trying to come up with a code name for her, which she very much refuses and does not want to be in this sort of superhero game. She's a very serious scientist who wants to do very serious scientists. But it's very fun. They have their crew, diverse cast. Very fun to see the three heroes all being women, as well as the villain in this movie being a woman as well. And I almost said, um, in response to the other question about favorite villain, I was really enjoying watching the actress playing Darben in the Marvels, who also kind of has this more complex backstory. It's this way in which... Captain Marvel has guilt for the way that she had destroyed the AI that had been kind of keeping things running for the planet that Darben is from and kind of set Darben off on this journey of of seeing Captain Marvel as being the villain. So that added a different dimension to things as well. From whose perspective are you seeing the story and what kind of motivates that going forward? And then other things that I've been watching continued and finished with season two of Foundation. Uh, loved it. I had so many emotional ups and downs in, in that last little bit. So it's pretty clear there is a season three coming from the way things ended. Absolutely. And then I started watching season two of Wheels, Wheel of Time. So I'm getting myself re-immersed in that storyline and just watch the episode where where one of the burgeoning Aes Sedai goes through her journey through the arches and trying to kind of understand what these arches are and what impact they have on people. Um, whether it's real, whether it's not, is an interesting thing to think about. That was a very, I thought, um, 
profound episode of that show. Mm-hmm. The the tests that they have to go through that they may or may not even come back from. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting take on a trial or initiation into a particular order. Really enjoyed it. Yes. Really loved season two more than season one. That was a better mm. season overall. Like season one, really like season two even more. Like I would now happily watch season three, whereas end of season one, I'm like, I'll try season two. Now I'm like, I want to see more. So it was a bit different than, less derivative than season one, which felt like Fellowship of the Ring. Like, let's walk with a wizard to the White Tower. <laughs> this still <laughs> It was much different. Yes. And the use and abuse of those who have unique powers, with I thought, was more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still kind of seeing how that plays out and speaking of sort of this moral ambiguity, right? It's not always clear to me, at least at this stage, who are the good guys and the bad guys of the Aes Sedai realm or what their intentions are, if that's even a useful frame. Right. How they view things how they see the big picture, what motivates them personally, globally, and how they act on those things that they understand. We watched Loki season two, which just finished the other night as of this recording, and really enjoyed season two. Love season one, really enjoyed season two quite a lit. Kei Kwan is in it. He plays a character named Ouroboros, or OB, and he's wonderful. He was in... Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, where he won Best Sporting Actor for the Oscar. He also was Data in The Goonies. He was um, the sidekick in Temple of Doom. And he was in something else really big as well. But he was, as a kid, in those two movies. And it's nice seeing him back. He's really great. And I just think it's just a fantastic show. And the ending is so beautiful and interesting. And I will not spoil it for you, but it's just well worth for All Mankind just started again with season four, one of my favorite science fiction shows as of late, like pure science fiction. It's just the narrative of what the space race looks like is just accelerated faster and farther because the Russians get to the moon first in season one. And the Cold War really happens in orbit on the moon and on Mars. And season four takes us to there is a Mars colony trying to become self-sufficient, and there's only much one episode. There's a gold rush towards mining asteroids, and I'm curious to see where it's going to go. And I think it's just fantastic. I just think it's great speculative science fiction. Like, what if the Russians do get to the moon first, and there's this big bad race? In this particular season, they're calling themselves the G7 or the M- the M7, the M7, the Mars Seven, the Seven Nations of mm-hmm. Earth. We're going to be collaborating, not competing, to make Mars a viable human colony. So I'm dying to see where it goes. I'm loving it. Um, I also watched Foundation. Love the ending. In particular, it was with moving and, yeah, that's what you get, bad dude. Loved it. I've been rewatching the Mission Impossible movies, which may or may not be science fiction because of the gadgetry. Mm. They're ludicrous, but plausible. That's just like mindless entertainment with ridiculous stuns. That's just fun. The one with the mm-hmm. most morally ambiguous is I'm watching the Amazon Prime show, which is a spinoff of The Boys, called Gen V. 
which I do not recommend to the faint of heart. It is, The Boys is set in a world where in the early 20th century, all of a sudden people have superpowers. They think they're given by God. So there's like a religious overtone to who these soups are. And it's all like vaguely analogous to Marvel or DC. You know, there's like a Captain America analog who is not a Boy Scout. And not a good, kind person. All these superheroes are corrupt, morally bankrupt, deeply ambivalent about what it means to have powers, and just mm. basically awful. And then, of course, it's actually a drug created by a corporation who wants to control and exploit these superheroes for their own financial gain. And basically, it's like if Marvel actually made Captain America. Like, if the Marvel studio created an actual Captain America and then use him for their movies. That's the basic premise of the whole show. Gen V is the university where young superheroes go for their education, but the only majors are like media and crime fighting. So you're either like fighting crime or you're basically a social media influencer on YouTube or TikTok. That's what they're being trained in. It's very morally vapid the season finished and it was cool seeing you know kids who are going into like this college environment who aren't yet corrupt and morally bankrupt kind of like figuring out because they now know that it's a drug they're the first generation to actually realize oh this is simply our parents did this to us as a part of an experiment for money so they have to deal with that it critiques a lot of social media a lot of social media imagery, acting online in order to get hits not to actually be authentic, parents pressuring kids to do things for their own financial gain. It's about a lot of things. It's very good. And it's definitely, we don't know who is good, who is evil. It's unclear what anyone's motives actually are. And they don't even know what their own motives actually are or why they do what they do sometimes. The lead superhero of what's called the seven who's basically like the avengers is this superman type character called homelander and he's just the absolute worst he's the absolute worst <laughs> it's a very post 2016 version of what superheroes look like he basically at one point kills somebody in in broad daylight and there's no political fallout everyone thinks he's great so that's what i've been watching lately <laughs> you know a range um, for sure. Let's turn to our main topic, living in the gray, beyond good and evil. And this is a topic that we came to after a lot of discussion. So remind me, and everyone, like, how did we kind of come to this particular topic this month? So there's a lot that we could say here. Moral ambiguity, navigating moral choices is something that comes up, I think, for any of us who are engaged with and involved in reading through the Jewish tradition, through the lens of the Torah, the ways that we see that often the decisions that we need to make or the way that we evaluate things is not always clearly black or white. Um, we started thinking and talking about this topic because, of course, we want to acknowledge that right now there is a war going on between Israel and Gaza it started on, on October 7th after we had recorded our last episode. We had been talking and thinking about 
about all of the questions that were coming up for us and for people in our communities around that. We were intrigued by or engaged by the questions that apply both in this situation as we're thinking about it and in many others, which are how do we how do we navigate a world that is not always black and white? What does our tradition have to say about it? Where do we see those kinds of choices and decisions being navigated in sci-fi and fantasy works and theme trends, commonalities can we identify between all of these different sources? My mind wants to start at some of the the genres that we love and watch. Some of them like have such moral clarity, like I am good mm-hmm. or evil. I will fight you, evil villain. Whack, 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 until good conquers evil. Yay, the end. You know, we love those stories. They're great. They're gratifying. They provide a simple lens on the world. This is what good is. That is what evil is. And there's a fight and good will always win. Those are fun. They're they're easy narratives to watch. Once they become ambiguous, then it's like, oh, God, you know, uh. I think specifically, like the opening scene from The Boys, which I will describe briefly, you know, it's a world where there are superheroes. If you watch The Flash, you know, Barry Allen as The Flash, and I'm talking about like the recent Grant Gustin version, which I enjoyed thoroughly. The Flash is this gold hearted, wonderful young man who has Iris, who's a wonderful person, and his friends are great. And he's like using his powers for good to always try and like save people. He's just like unequivocally a good person and lovely. So the opening scene of the boys is it's a young man and a young woman. They're clearly in love. They're dating, boyfriend, girlfriend, etc. And she steps off the curb and they're kind of looking through those eyes. And she's immediately run through by A-Train, who is sort of like the analog to the Flash in their world, and he just obliterates her. She is just instantly killed in a horrific moment of graphic violence. And he kind of stops. He's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, and then like runs off. And so you Mm. immediately have a world where these, quote, superheroes are making bad choices, out of control, and don't care about people anymore. Like, that's a much more morally gray, ambiguous world. That's the world of the boys where the superheroes mm. are actually morally depraved. But everyone still loves them and pays money to go see them. So I think about the modern sensibility of let's create a more morally ambiguous version of the stories we loved where it was all morally clear. I think we are looking for more nuanced stories in the way we tell stories now and not just the ones where it's so easily reduced to black and white. So that is sort of, that's on the menu. Um, in a lot of things where it's like, it's not so simple anymore at all. Right. Right. That makes me think about, as you're talking about this, right, superhero narratives in particular, and a, the way that a lot of them originated in the United States, like a lot of these characters were created by nice Jewish boys, a lot of like things coming out of and around World War II. Mm-hmm. Thinking about Superman, you know, Superman is this, strong, undeniably good character battling the forces of evil, the way that superhero figures got kind of leveraged as part of World War II propaganda was really interesting too, 
the way that they helped create and paint this picture of the moral universe that the United States was finding itself in of, you know, we're in a battle of good and evil, us versus the Nazis, and even the superheroes are on board with this. And it like had that kind of clarity. But most often in the world that we live in since, that's not the case. And it, but it also raises another question for me as you were talking. What do we want to see? Or what do we as individuals want to see? And what do other people want to see in the stories and media that they consume? Is it that we want to see stories that help us think about and deal with the world as we actually live in it, which is often not black and white, often morally ambiguous? Or is there also this piece of wanting the comfort and escapism of those kinds of narratives where things are very clear and black and white precisely because our world does not always make it that easy for us? Right. So there's a desire for both. There is mm -hmm. an audience. Depends on our mood. I, th I think about Star Wars, you know, my beloved, you know, realm. When I was a kid, it was Luke, good, Vader, bad, Rebels, good, Empire, bad, blowing up Death Star, yay, evil's been thwarted. You know, very, very simple, you know, unreflective narrative of Rebels are good, Empire, bad, and then that's it. And now, uh -huh. you know, you bring in far more in, over the years. I mean, Lucas has brought in much more nuance. And in particular, then the, in the post George Lucas, Disney versions of Star Wars stuff, it's it become more and more um, morally ambiguous. It was even really ambiguous back then, too. There's a scene in the movie Clerks where they're talking about maybe it's Clerks 2. I'm not sure where the friend is talking to the, the main character about the Death Star and how on the first Death Star, which was ostensibly complete and, and was basically a military battleship, you know, its destruction, you could say, was, you know, more clearly an act of war. Everybody there is basically, you know, a stormtrooper or support staff, although albeit some civilians, its destruction was not as difficult, perhaps. But in Return of the Jedi, it's under construction. Those are just construction crews, just, you know, getting a paycheck and a job. Their death is far more morally problematic than the first Death Star. And like, what about, you know, those innocent civilians who died when Lando blew up the Death Star in that movie? And it kind of raises the moral ambiguity of the rebels. Like, it's not so obvious. Maybe they have good motives, but, you know, are their methods problematic because of the death of thousands of civilians? And actually, in the books written after Return of the Jedi, how the Empire fails and the New Republic reemerges, it's very morally ambiguous, like, in general. So, like, Star Wars became, after that point, far murkier. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a great place for the whole thing to kind of have matured into, which is, it is not so simple anymore. Maybe it was easy then when the Emperor was in charge of the Empire and Vader was, you know, his attack dog on a leash. Um, but now it's far more ambiguous. And I really enjoy, like, the evolution of Star Wars into these more complex areas. It's just more interesting for storytelling. I'm also an mm -hmm. older person. I'm not a seven-year-old anymore. And... <laughs> Star Wars has also aged with me as people who like Star Wars have also aged and want to see 
more complex stories told within that same simple universe. Like the show Andor, about the beginning mm-hmm. of their season, Andor opens with Andor, like, you know, murdering somebody, you know, needlessly. Um, and so it's, ah, he's the good guy? What's going on? It's immediately morally ambiguous. It's like, oh, he's the, the hero, right. but he's, he murdered somebody. And it's terrible. And it's awful. And, you know, a guy begs for his life and he gets killed too. It's like, ah, this is not what I was signing up for with Star Wars. But it is. <laughs> so as you were talking and before you you added that last little bit, I was also thinking, right, is this a maturing or as we all move through our lifespan, our ethical development, our intellectual development, the level of complexity with which we can deal with things um, hopefully increases. And you're seeing, you're describing that with Star Wars and we could probably see that with other longstanding universes as well and how these things have been played with, made more complex, made more ambiguous over time. And it also makes me think about the way that children often learn about the Jewish tradition, learn about biblical stories, stories from the Torah. Ah. You have to start somewhere when you're teaching kids. This just came up in a conversation that I was having with my third grader earlier this week. He was noticing how every year he goes to a Jewish day school as they go through the Torah portion they're adding in more detail, um, including some of the more difficult and maybe morally ambiguous questions that come up oh. in some of these parshiot. So the thing that he highlighted from this past week's parsha, which was Chaye Sarah, was the first thing that happens in Chaye Sarah is that Sarah, you learn that Sarah dies, and that wasn't something that was introduced in kindergarten first and second grade so much that was not a thing that they focused on so there's this an understanding with all kinds of education of like a patterning of okay we can get into greater degrees of complexity we can start introducing more of these kinds of questions we're we're seeing it with the further development of some of these sci-fi and fantasy properties. I don't know if I have a specific thing I want to conclude with there or question to pose, but it does make me think right, about the importance of continuing to have that development. And I, I see it so often that a lot of people received most of their Jewish education, let's say, or perhaps in other traditions too, a lot of their religious education at a young age. And when you only got like the kid level version and you didn't advance through the the engagement with some of these more complex topics indeed and so people might walk away thinking like oh you know the torah or the hebrew bible or whatever doesn't have anything meaningful to say to me in my life as a person who lives in a world that's complicated but part of that is you didn't have the opportunity to engage with it in these more complex ways yeah, I remember several years ago when I was in Syracuse, it was a bat mitzvah, Shabbat morning, and the triennial Torah reading for that day was the abduction of Dina. 
I, and I apologize. It's a complicated the one. Massacre of the city of Shechem. And so I preemptively apologize to all of our non-Jewish guests who their first time in a synagogue, <laughs> perhaps, what do they hear read mm-hmm. from the Torah? This core spiritual text was the story of an abduction, rape, and a massacre. I'm like, that is a hard first Torah reading to hear. Not easy. And then two weeks ago, during Lera, which is the story of, has a lot of very difficult texts, in particular, the story of Lot and his two daughters, who think they're the only three people left on the earth, and each daughter gets Lot, their father, drunk on one night, has sex with him in order to bear a child to propagate the human species, which they each do one night after the next. That's a difficult story about drunkenness and incest and desperation and end-of-the-world thinking. I remember mm-hmm. seeing a humash for kids actually at the JTS book sale um, at our seminaries, like annual getting rid of old books, come and buy some. It was a humash. It was a linear translation, one line of the Torah, one line in English, you know, on and on. But certain passages were not translated, including those two, among others. Um, mm-hmm. Among others. You know, they just don't developmentally want kids to read those stories because they're just not right. ready yet as children. So they kind of keep the Torah a little simpler for little kids. Um, but at some point, you have to teach these stories. And I'm glad your kid is getting, you know, the deeper and deeper, harder material. Even just the fact of death is, is a great yeah. thing to begin to introduce. I was teaching yeah. a class on, like, difficult texts like this in the Tanakh. And I was teaching... The story of Lot and his daughters, the story of Dina, and the story of Judah and Tamar. And I realized this is maybe sort of like a, a point to make, and then we'll kind of move beyond it. All of a lot of the weird stories where things get really, really ethically murky and problematic, they all lead to King David. I don't know what to do hmm. with that, but a lot of them lead to David, the king of Israel. So yeah, well, entire... he, who is himself, engages in some ethically More... problematic behavior. Indeed, he does. And he's the center of a lot of, and his children are deeply disturbing. So he's like this lightning rod for attracting past, present, and future a lot of very difficult stories. And I don't know that. And one day I will explore that more fully. I just note that a lot of these very difficultly, morally ambiguous texts are kind of like leading to and away from king david okay yeah kind of wild kind of wild uh, so let's shift to looking at like the jewish take on moral clarity moral ambiguity you know clear good and evil versus a more subtle take of good and evil gotta go to genesis one because there's nowhere else really to start gotta look at the beginning of everything and see how the torah in the first verses, tackles the issue. I don't know about you, but I can't not read Genesis 1 anymore out of the context of the ancient Near East mythological cultural context. You know what I mean? Like, I am a JTS graduate. Mm-hmm. Can't do it. Right. So the Babylonian version, in short, which is kind of like the Greek version, the Roman version, essentially, and I will not belabor this, there's the elder gods, and then there's the younger gods. The younger gods disturb one of the elder gods. They fight. An elder god is killed. 
the other elder god raises an army of demons to fight the younger gods. The younger gods are thrown into a panic. They say, who will lead us in battle and fight off our grandparent? And one of them says, I will lead the battle. And that god leads the, the charge against the demon army and then slays the elder deity, often female, often the saltwater god, oceanic, mm -hmm. and splits her body and creates the sky and the oceans. And then in the Babylonian version, takes the blood of the demon army and makes humanity. And then the little gods enthrone the god who led them to victory in their palace, and they proclaim this god to be the god who created the world. Our version is boring, but importantly so. Our version, there is no conflict, there is no war, there is no violence. Our God is the one who simply creates, takes stuff, and makes order, and then just sits back and creation unfolds after that. Is that a fair summary of the difference, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very comprehensive summary, but I'm also wondering, does the conflict, you said there is no conflict, or does the conflict just Aha. get internalized, Aha. right? Exactly, exactly. exactly. Or what I thought conflict. a minute ago was, well, maybe the conflict is not between greater and lesser deities. It, it ends up being, in the context of our conversation about good and evil, maybe a conflict between first human beings and the deity. Deity uh, did not see coming, right? The challenge is coming from... The, the created beings, Adam and Eve, of course, who were placed in the garden and are told, you know, you can eat from anything, but do not eat from the tree in the center of the garden. The snake, acting for its own purposes, begins asking Eve some questions about this. And, of course, this is the, the tree of, of knowledge. And... Presumably before this point, before before eating from its fruit, it's hard to imagine what the state of being would have been like for the human beings that are living there, but that there is no awareness right. of there being these separate things, good or evil. So now I'm kind right. of thinking about the cosmic sense of what then I think we're going to get to of, you know, it's not always so clear what delineates good and evil. And maybe the moment before eating this fruit, it's like you're still existing in this like primordial state of everything's kind of blended together and not portioned out that way. Yeah. Adam and Eve, in my mind, when I read Genesis 2 and 3, do kind of come across as naive, childlike adults who are naked but don't know and don't care and who are also immortal. Like a child would feel, running around naked, and there's no end in sight. There's no awareness of death. That's how I always could have imagined those two. Uh, and I can't help it, I'll kind of get you back, back up a little bit more. So at the end of creation, God says everything was tov me'od, very good. And a lot of things in creation are described as good, um, except for, well, on Tuesday, there's a Monday. Monday, nothing is considered, second day, nothing is considered good because there's a split. 
there's nothing good on that day. Good is mentioned twice on the third day to kind of catch up. Because ocean and sky are good, but the splitting is not good. But humanity is not good. Humanity is the only thing that is not called Tov. And it's kind of like God reserves judgment. Hmm. But then everything is called Tov Me'od. And the early rabbis, some of them say, oh, Tov Me'od, that is the Yetzer Hara. The simple version, that is the evil impulse, the evil drive or the evil inclination you often hear. And then there's, of course, a Yetzer HaTov, the good inclination, the good drive, which is to which is that in competition with the Yetzer Hara. I read this book many years ago about storytelling and it claims that there are only so many different kinds of stories and every story like Genesis 1 has to have a monster. Well, you know, the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian one, there was a monster in that one. The monster was this army of demons sent to destroy the younger gods. But in Genesis 1, humanity is the hero and the monster. We have this internal conflict that the rabbis kind of read into the word Ma'od from the very beginning. Which then leads right. to, you know, everything you said, I believe, where, you know, Adam and Eve will disobey the do not eat that fruit and Cain will kill Abel because there is something battling within humanity, these two warring impulses that is, I don't know, is it unsuspected or does God know it's there the whole time? What do you think? Is it a surprise or is it the plan? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like there are so many examples in the Torah where it feels like God does not seem to be aware of this and seems to be su repeatedly surprised by what human beings do. <laughs> yeah. But other times where it seems like there's this indication of, okay, yes, I know kind of what's going on, right? If God had known, for example, that human beings were going to be that way, then why would you have ever gotten to the point where we needed to sort of escalate and wipe everyone out as God does in the story of Noah and the flood and essentially start yeah. over. And then God learns from God's mistakes and says, okay, let's have some different rules. Now we're going to have some ground rules. And I'm also going to promise I'm not going to do this again. As if God is recognizing a reality that, oh, this didn't work out quite as I might have imagined. You can't I'm overstate. Going to I'm going to have to adjust my expectations. Yeah. You can't overstate the importance of that two-prong approach to God post-flood, by the way. It's so crucial for, I think, like the Jewish way of looking at the world, where there's both this recognition that humanity has an external problem. Humanity needs more external guidance. They need laws, structures. Humanity cannot be trusted, even with good intentions cannot be trusted to fend for themselves whether it's like an internal intuited you know natural law or whatever there's this need for an external structure and humanity has the internal problem of mm -hmm. in god's words in the torah humanity is rock ra kol hayom just evil all day long and so and, and then the forgiveness like oh i guess i have to accept them as they are You've got both that structure and compassion, which is for the rabbis, Dean and Rachamim, justice and compassion. And the blend of those two, I think, is a uniquely Jewish approach to 
life. And the rabbis really pick that up. I think rock, rock, kol hayom, only evil all day long, is that I think that God does know that the Yetzahara exists. I think that God is surprised that humanity can't control it. Hmm. I thought they'd be able to balance that better, like I told Cain he could, Cain, exactly. but clearly they cannot. Even the Sethites cannot yeah. control these two things in balance, and the Yetahara is winning out constantly. Maybe Noah and his family have the way to do that. Nope. Okay, it's just the way humanity is. Right. So, yeah, a couple of things first to go back to the Cain example, Cain. As you're saying, it's just to, to spell it out for all of those listening. So before Cain and Abel have any kind of conflict, it I really love this moment where God seems to recognize something in, in Cain, that he has some kind of tendency or inclination and says to him, this, this line, surely, if you do right, it's kind of hard to translate through. The GPS translation is there is uplift. Hallo im teitiv seit, the im lo teitiv la petachatat rovets, the elecha teshukato, the ata tim sholbo. That, but if you don't do right, sin crouch like crouching at the door. So there's this the, the word that's used here is is sin, not yetzer hara. But this idea of its urges towards you or its inclinations towards you, but you can master it. You can be its master. So to me, it's this amazing moment of God recognizing Cain has this particular inclination that's maybe unique to him. Maybe partic he's particularly likely to get kind of pulled by his passions. And God is trying to give him a little bit of like parental advice and say, you have this in you, it's there, acknowledge it, but you still have the ability to learn how to, to harness it. Um, right, of not eradicate you know, it. Not eradicate it, that's not impossible. Not eradicate it, but to work with it. And also to know there's no statement, you are an evil person, it's you have this in you. And I'm thinking about, you know, anyone who is a parent or an educator of children and is attentive to the differences between young people, it's like, and even with ourselves, you know, everybody has like their thing, right? Mm -hmm. That is always going to be a little bit of a challenge for them, or is like something that's their challenge to overcome or to learn how to work with, learn how to be with. And I feel like God is giving Cain that example. He does not succeed at least when he strikes and kills his brother but that to me is kind of a hint of oh god does seem to have this awareness as you were saying before although there are other times where it seems like no the other thing though is looking at that verse that you were talking about that describes the situation before god decides to destroy all of humanity except for Noah and his family that was rock rock kol hayom I think we had been talking about this a little bit oh what does that actually mean and mm -hmm. maybe parsing out what do tov and ra actually mean it's like yeah is it people are evil all the time or is the issue right as i think we had been talking about with this verse that they were all it was only ra and one of the things that we were saying in talking about i've asked this question many times ra is often translated as evil which i think you know whenever you're engaging in translation it's tricky because 
our lang our language, the English language and other languages, I'm sure as well, evil doesn't maybe map 100% onto the meaning of Ra. And that, right. I think we'll see this right. as we go and look at some of the rabbinic sources. Ra seems to mean maybe something that's more along the lines, uh, or the Yetzer Hara is more of a, the self-directed, the selfish. So yeah. am I being self-directed or am I being other-directed? And we actually need a balance of both of those things, as we'll see, I think, as we go on and look at some of the rabbinic sources. Yeah. So one of the problems with, with translating from Hebrew, which you have touched upon, is that Hebrew has very few words. Like modern Hebrew, let alone biblical Hebrew, modern Hebrew has maybe 80,000 words, maybe. Very few words. Oh. English has half a million words. And hmm. biblical Hebrew has even fewer words. And the way that poetics work in English is we revel in nuance and synonyms and saying one thing a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Hebrew poetry is the inverse opposite. We have one word that connotes a number of meanings. So it's, it's the inverse kind of poetry. We have one word that means several things. Mm -hmm. So translation is darn difficult. I had a teacher of translation. Not only is translation impossible, it is also very difficult, which I find delightful. Right? Because ra, right? Picking that one word in English limits ra, and that is probably way too limiting. Right. So I Rabbi Iris Stone, one of my teachers, a teacher of Musar, so the Jewish ethical piety movement that came out of Lithuania in the 19th century. He, he renders Yetzer Hara as the self-centered inclination and Yetzer Hatov as the selfless inclination, mm -hmm. exactly as you said. And that's, I think, a much more helpful way to think about that yes. as well. Much more, yeah. much more helpful and much more yeah. rabbinic. Yes. Yeah. And before we get into the rabbinic sources, I just want to highlight you know, there's the the line from Isaiah that gets rewritten and integrated into our liturgy when we say in as part of the morning service, So praising God for who creates light and forms darkness, who makes good and creates everything. In the original verse in Isaiah, it was who creates, who makes good, and it was Tov and Ra. Um, so there's this idea of, in the biblical tradition, of God being the creator of everything. And that includes both of these things that would fall into the categories of Tov and Ra. So most of us would, in our current setting, would not want to say, oh, God is Ra. But if Ra has this different meaning, then maybe that all starts to make a little bit more sense. Right. If God is the one who also created the drive in us of self-centeredness, which has a place, mm -hmm. well, then yes, then God gave me that drive. And that is to be acknowledged. Yeah. So let's take a look then at one of your and my you favorite know, source, my, one of my favorite sources from Masachet Yoma. 
I think it totally harkens back to the Cain and Abel story. I really, really do. Because that word crouches, which mm. makes chatat, sin, or yetzer hara, feel like an animal. Because the word rovetzin is what animals do when they're bending down. A picture like a cat who kind of crouches down before it leaps. Like that's, it's a very feline image in my mind. I grew mm -hmm. up with cats. I don't know if dogs crouch before they jump. Do they do that? Do you have dogs? Dog, I guess they kind of, yeah, they do. You know, sort of like getting back on their hind legs before they sort of pounce, you know? Okay. I, I will expand my notion beyond the feline to the canine. So like, you know, hunting animals, animals that hunt. Animals crouch, that hunt, for sure. Crouch and then leap. Right. Mm -hmm. So it definitely has that feeling to it. And so we have this very wonderful text. It is in Masechet Yoma, which is with Yom Kippur. And certainly, you know, on Yom Kippur, thinking about our dual inclinations. So the rabbis are imagining that in the period of time after the Babylonian exile has come to an end, which is 70 years after the first temple was destroyed, um, that some Jews have returned to the land of Israel. They've begun to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild the second temple, getting Judea and Judean society back up and running in some kind of orderly fashion. And it's just very stressful. And there's a verse in Nehemiah 9.4, and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the rabbis asked, well, what are they crying out for? Which is, well, they're crying out because as they're rebuilding the second temple, they go, we don't want to fall into the same trap again and let this temple be destroyed. Well, what was the reason the first one was destroyed? Oh, it was because of the Yetzer Hara. It was our self-centeredness, our selfishness that led the first temple to be destroyed. And that led to like the death of countless people and caused us to live in exile. And yet the Yetzer Hara is still around. So let's get rid of it. And they do this three-day fast and they pray and at the end of the three days god agrees to let them kill the yetzer hara and i love this i'll read this one line <laughs> the moment when god says yes go for it a form of a fiery lion cub came forth from the chamber of the holy of holies i just love that that when the yetzer hara appears it looks like a fiery Simba from the Lion King. Right. Who... So yeah, your crouching imagery and feline-ness makes sense here too. And yeah, I feel, I feel like they're playing off of that image. Yeah. And and even though they don't say it explicitly, and also it's like, I love that it comes out of the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. like that's showing you, again, this ex example. It's like, okay, right? they say in this source that, oh, maybe God gave human beings the yetzer hara in order to for us to overcome it but here it's saying very clearly oh it is actually divine in origin because it this little you know fiery lion cub scampers out of the holy of holies which is the innermost sanctum of the temple where only the high priest would go on yom kippur yeah and there it is out of the holy of holies and it goes on they, they basically they they grab it and one hair falls out and the thing screams and it's heard for 400 miles. So I picture not unlike in 
Gen V or Marvel movies where some superhero has this supersonic shout where they're just all kind of like blown back by this supersonic roar from this little lion cub. Like, okay, can't do that. Like, you can't kill it. So what are we going to do? And so basically they make a, they, they make a lead container and they basically trap it. <laughs> they put it under a big lead pot. Um, they go, ha ha, we got it. And then what happens that weekend? Um, basically no eggs get laid. I love that very subtle, like nothing happens. Everything, all of the forces that move life into the next day simply stop. Nobody wants to do anything, including chickens don't lay eggs. Have you seen the movie Firefly? No, yes. no, no, no. Serenity. So at the end of the movie Serenity, which is a capstone to the show of Firefly, they find the planet called Harmony, which is like super secret and off the charts. And the people there found a way to separate out people's selfishness from their self-centeredness. They're able to create a completely selfless society. And they all sit there and they just let themselves die. And the other parts of humanity that are completely self-centered become this horrible cannibalistic group called the Reavers. Just the worst. And they kind of separate out. Yetzirah, Yetzirah Tov. Everyone has all of one and nothing of the other. And it's a complete and utter disaster, like the worst of failed experiments of all time. And it's kept super secret. So I always think of that when I read this, like they just, nothing happened. There's no drive to do anything. They go, okay, well, we can't kill it or life will simply stop. The drive is what makes us do anything. Like get up, feed ourselves, take a bath anything so they gouge out its eyes which i guess does not cause it to yell and they let it go figuring it's weaker now what can we do right. love this story so much they have to they have to accept the etzer hara as part of necessity of human experience right they get on god's page finally i guess we have to accept that people are simply going to be self-centered and we have to work with it it's a very nuanced take on evil. Like people contain yeah. this drive. It's not a good or bad thing. It's not a moral issue. You need this drive, but right. it can't be let to be, it can't be let to be the king. Right. It, it can't be, be like the planet harmony. And I mean, that's the thing that I think comes up when we're looking at that verse from Parsha Noah, when they're talking about, you know, everybody's rock raw kol hayom. Right? Yeah. Imagine we don't get to see the example of what happens if everybody was rock tov kol hayom. Maybe it would be like boring planet harmony. Yep. Um, yep. And and we see that a little bit in this example. They're just sort of subtly saying like, no eggs were laid. Okay, well, you know, humanity would die and all other species would die out pretty quickly because no one would rep reproduce seems to be the upshot yeah. here in the but... biblical fantasy epic noah with russell crowe and jennifer blanking on her name which one i don't i don't from labyrinth from, from labyrinth snowpiercer oh connelly connelly the humanity pre-flood definitely has a lot of reaver type qualities. They're vicious, bloodthirsty, 
bloodthirsty. Nobody cares for anybody but themselves. There's definitely like a Reaver vibe about the the Kane people. Yeah, like there's a, a Reaver vibe about them for sure. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think this source really just sums up the rabbi's take on the Yetzer Hara. We need it. We tried to weaken it. And now it's our job to balance it. Right. It's about achieving a balance between these things. That they're both actually necessary parts of keeping the world running. Yeah. Um, and that does stand in, in, in contrast with the idea of Amalek, who is viewed as radical evil, which is maybe that morally clear Jewish idea. Amalek is mm-hmm. just evil for evil's sake, just pure destruction. They are the enemy. And, and, and calling somebody Amalek is a very potent and dangerous thing. Yeah. There's no moral argument to be had, right? And in, in, you are yeah. making a clear assessment of yeah. their total depravity. Just to explain for a, a moment, right? Yeah. Amalek. Amalek. Yeah. Amalek. Amalek footnote, please. Footnote. Amalek uh, attacks the Jewish people or the Israelites as they are uh, at their weakest, attacking from the rear. And therefore, we're told to erase or blot out Amalek because of what they did. And then the tradition is that Haman, the villain of the Purim story, um, yep. Haman is said to be an Amalekite because, so that's sort of like your code word, ding, ding, ding. He is pure evil and he is the villain. This like sense that these are people that are, there's sort of this inherent evil that's important that you pointed this example out that that's one of the few examples i think where there's this sense that evil is not only inherent but seems to be transmitted across generations which is a very problematic idea and we could talk about if we get into haman and evil if he's the literal biological descendant of amalek or more the spiritual inheritor of that kind of evil i have thoughts on that and then later on, Amalek, especially in Hasidic sources, becomes really the Yetzer Hara. They, 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 they take it away from the external and they make it about the internal, what, what, what people are all capable of if left unchecked and morally unbalanced. We all could become Amalek, which is a very interesting and important shift in like thinking about evil. And more subtle, back to the subtle of the early rabbis versus like the moral clarity of the external evil. I want to bring that this back a little bit to our sci-fi and fantasy realms. Yes. And the conversation that we were having about how do we think that these genres engage with questions of good or evil in general? Do we think that there are differences overall that we can point to and how sci-fi as a genre versus fantasy as a genre do this or do we think they both take similar approaches to engaging with these questions i definitely find myself like kind of pouring over different examples like ones that i think of as being very morally clear are they actually ambiguous or they're not ambiguous like we mentioned star wars kind of begins very morally clear and then as the star wars universe is expanded and more stories are being told about it it becomes more morally complex 
Um, but that's really not sci-fi. That's really science fantasy. So I would say that that may even be both like a a genre bending and morality bending. Like it goes between clear and ambiguous as well. Because Star Wars has become in part more science fiction based on kind of the stories they're telling. I, I, I always think of like fantasy as the more morally clear and sci-fi is generally more morally ambiguous kind of based on Lord of yeah. the Rings, you right. know, as like, like yeah. the arc of fantasy Tolkien was very clear, you know, that, yes. you know, Sauron is evil and must be defeated. There's nothing good right. about Sauron. Yeah. I mean that, and right. So that's, that was the question that came up for me. Like as I had kind of first posited this, right. Oh, maybe fantasy as a genre has been less into the complexity and shades of gray. I don't know that that's true anymore or if I would hold by this, but I think it's because the example of Tolkien looms so large I mean, obviously they have earlier predecessors, but the point where we start seeing a lot of the classic works that we identify as being sci-fi or fantasy coming out of the late 19th and the early decades of the 20th century are both responding to a rapidly changing, technologically driven world in different ways. That the claim that I want to make is that fantasy has often taken the approach of, well, let's respond to the anxieties of our age by sort of hearkening back to a romanticized, mythologized past where good and evil yeah. are clear, where we know what the questions are, we know how to identify evil and what we have to do to get rid of it versus the sci-fi approach, which is more future-directed and engaged with like, oh, look at where things are now what are all the possibilities that could emerge from this? And what are all the complexities that we might need to navigate as we go forward? So fantasy yeah. is essentially trying to comfort my anxiety by looking back at a simpler time. And sci-fi is provoking my anxiety by saying it's going to get worse. <laughs> I mean, there are examples maybe of sci-fi that are also kind of utopian, right? Like, oh, look how technology is going to solve all of our problems. But that's like the kid that's version. A boring movie. That's, a boring that's like movie. the Jetsons. That's the Jetsons. Right. Most often, that does not seem to be the case. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think that, number one, because a world where everything is fine, there's no problems, is very bad literature. That's very dull. Nobody wants to read that nor see that. That's like a cartoon for children. The Jetsons. By the way, I wanted to state for the record, I do not have a jetpack yet. Nor a flying car. And it's 2023, and it's late. Last year, by the way, George Jetson was born, in theory. Yeah, I, I guess, like, science fiction is so usually focused on, like, in Foundation, the new Asimov-based series. The Empire is very happy with itself, but we it's all about, like, its decay, its crumbling at the edges. Like, no structure that big is eternal. It's just, it has too many parts. It has to, at some point fall apart things have to go wrong because they're made by people nothing that we make is eternal so there's inevitable decay and foundation is kind of focusing on the decay how it happens and how humanity will ultimately survive the crumbling and then the rebuilding you know kind of like what nehemia and ezra are doing in the book of nehemia as are rebuilding um after the decay of you know judean civilization and hoping that when they, what they rebuild will not fall to the same forces 
I've got, I, 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 feel like the, I think that modern fantasy has become much more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah, like Game of Thrones, it's it's much subtler. Yes. It's much, you know, it's more about incompetence, abuse, people just letting their Yetzer Harag get control of them, but they're not evil people. Like, even no. the Lannisters are not all evil. They're just selfish. King Baratheon's just, like, you know, a drunk uh, who's just not very good at being king. I mean, there's not a lot of pure evil, which is, I think, why I thought it so compelling. It was so much more interesting in some ways than Lord of the Rings, which I love, but it's more morally complex, and that was uh, gripping. This is making me think back to the earlier part of our conversation where we were talking about the way that Star Wars has gotten more ambiguous and complex over time. You were talking about the ways in which Star Wars is really space fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, because the earlier creations in the series really follow that less morally ambiguous arc. There is good yeah. and evil. Yeah. And that it, maybe it has kind of grown more into this more complex approach. Would we say that is making it more alike with other sci-fi things or is it that we're in a moment where there seems to be this trend towards greater complexity in a lot of these things that are being created and produced and elaborated on especially in series form i think that the people who grew up with star wars and things like that who are now adults are looking for more complexity as as we've grown up i think it's largely our peers who are now the creatives and doing a lot of this stuff or the ones who are like shaping the storytelling they don't want the same old same old they want something new complex surprising subversive interesting oh when star wars first came out though george lucas was trying to be and morally ambiguous by critiquing the vietnam war and was portraying the empire basically as the u.s and the vietnamese as the rebels trying to create like a, if you saw it from the rebel, from the Vietnamese point of view, you would see the war differently. Yes. And I think by that time, people knew that the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War was very problematic in a lot of ways. It was long over at that point. But I think he was trying to bring the ambiguity into that moral clarity beyond the cinema by showing a very clear story, but having you sympathize with, quote, the bad guys, as it were. And the rebels are basically, remember, the rebels are basically terrorists, if you're the Empire. Right. Yeah, they're scum. They're the worst. They're rabble-rousers. They're just trouble. They're just trying to ruin things. They're trying to ruin what we've built, which is so good. Exactly. Just like the British Empire felt about the American colonists who were rebelling. Yeah. Why mess up a good thing? Yeah, you'll be back. You'll be back. Yes. One movie that I saw that came out in 79 that was kind of all about like moral complexity. And I just watched a an analysis of it on a YouTube channel called The Deep Dive, hosted by Eric Voss, where he basically analyzed the movie Alien. And it is worth... I've never seen Alien. I've only seen the sequels. I was just too young when it came out don't like horror never got back to it but i watched his analysis the nuance that he sees in it is that you think you know who the hero is 
you think it to be one of the men on the crew of the Nostromo. And you think that the villain is this xenomorph, this alien that they encounter, who horrifyingly, in particular from a male point of view, is impregnated with this alien life. You think that, like, that's the villain, and one of the men is the hero, and then you realize throughout the movie that, oh, no, no, this character who's on the side, Ripley, she's actually the hero. She's the one who actually can fight the xenomorph, and that the xenomorph isn't really even the villain. It's just another life form trying to survive, like we all are. And the real villain is the corporation who sent the ship out there just to get a sample of the xenomorph, and they're all being used and the victims of corporate greed. It's, it's, so it, it begins like this good guy, bad alien thing. It becomes much more subtle over the course of the film. And that's a, a very interesting film to kind of see the the subversion of those tropes in that sci-fi movie as well. So I think that commends it as a great example of setting you up for one thing and then slowly subverting all the expectations. And the sequel is also fantastic. So I think Alien is a good example of that. You know, the real villain is Yetzer Hara, greed, like the desire for money. That's the real villain. That's, it's greed out of control. Yes, it's important to make money, but like at the expense of humanity, you know, huh, a little out of balance there. Yeah. You want to say a word or two about Pixar movies and yeah, we're talking who about the villains are in Pixar movies. Yeah, we were talking about the Disney movies having very clear villains. You know, the evil queen, the evil stepmother, the evil witch. Um, Gaston, who is beautiful, but he's he's really the beast inside. You know, there's a little moral ambiguity there. We, we all know he's like an awful person, but nobody else does. That's disturbing. Um, <laughs> the village's admiration of Gaston is actually even more horrifying than Gaston himself. And yet, <laughs> I feel like that feels very true to life in some Ugh. ways. But Pixar movies, there is never a villain that is like the external, you know, I can see them, they're coming to get me antagonist. You know, the, the, we're talking about an Elemental, the most recent Pixar movie, that my daughter, who is a design major in university, she picked up, oh, the villain here is, oh, neglected infrastructure because of a neighborhood that is where people from a foreign country live. Like, that's the villain. But it was very effective. And every Pixar movie has a more subtle approach to where the evil lies in that one. Do you have a favorite Pixar movie, your, your favorite Pixar villain? That's a good question I was not that I was not prepared to answer. <laughs> I mean, incredible. The Incredibles was just on my brain, in my mind. Yeah. Was, my kids watched it recently. I'm like, that's seems a little bit more of like a traditional kind of plot line. Um, yeah. Right. Most of them, Coco, I, I love Coco. I love them. And um, I just think it's just artistically so amazing. And right. That does not have, right. There is no clear, what is the, what is the villain? The loss of memory or people's memories being lost when no one who remembers them is alive anymore. And this 
Right. It's a very Jewish theme also, right? The, the necessity of keeping memory alive. Yeah, Coco's, I gotta re Coco's worth a rewatch. I gotta rewatch that. That yeah. really was beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It engages with themes that can be hard to talk about and does it in such a beautiful way. There's so much less anxiety about death in in the cultures represented in Coco. So much more, I want to say familiarity, but more of like an ease of being in the presence of death and facing death. Yeah. As you said that, what's coming up for me is there's been a lot more conversation, both in Jewish and circles and kind of American society more broadly, about the ways that talking more about death can improve our life and that it's also leading me to think you know probably this having a more direct contact with death is more common in sort of the overall experience of humanity than has been the case in let's say you know the developed world in the last hundred or so years as we have declining mortality rates as also the technology again this is another one of those examples of an area where technology has distanced us from an aspect of our lives you know mm -hmm. we talked about this with food preparation and animal slaughter and all kinds of things and often many of us who are are pri privileged to to live in secure neighborhoods or places where we have relatively good access to healthcare system, food, water, you know, are not in direct contact with death. When someone dies, the body is sort of quickly removed. Often deaths these days take place in hospital settings where they are taken out of our field of vision much more qu quickly. And it, when we're not familiar with it, I think it can also make it scarier. Yeah. And so in cultures like the culture depicted in Coco, which I believe is Mexico and revolves around the family celebration of Dia de los Muertos, there's the day of the dead where people celebrate by remembering their deceased ancestors, by going to the cemetery, by offering their favorite foods, by doing things to engage with them and activate their memory. And also I think creates in, at least in the way that the movie portrays it. And I think this can be, has been true in many cultures, including at times Jewish culture, a sense of continuity between the people who are living and the people who are no longer living. We do this with Yiskor candles or remembering people at their yard site and that Jewish women in particular in different contexts have played an important role in kind of keeping the family memories alive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was thinking about this week's. I was about this past week's Torah portion, Chaye Sarah, where Abraham is mourning Sarah's death, and when he confronts Sarah's death, he's not angry; he's sad. He mourns, he grieves, he weeps, but he's not angry, and he doesn't feel like this is an injustice. Right. When he contemplates his own death in last in the previous week's Torah portion, 
he's worried that if he dies, he'll have no successor, no heir. And that gives him anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, and, and when Jacob loses Joseph and almost loses Benjamin, when Jacob loses Joseph, he spends the rest of his life basically in, in, in a state of mourning or the next 21 years in a state of mourning because of that, the injustice done to Joseph having died at a young age or having been bereft of his beloved son at a young age. Uh, but death, I, I, I got this from the author John D. Levinson. So one book is called Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. And he yeah. focuses on, on like, sort of like the motif of death. He's like, death is not the villain in the Hebrew Bible. It, it's much more morally ambiguous. It's never, it's never, death itself is not evil. It is simply a natural part of life, which we are very sad about. But it is not vilified, which death sometimes is often vilified as, as an evil thing versus a necessary thing that is simply part of being alive. So in terms of like the moral ambiguity about that, I think that the Hebrew Bible has this healthy lack of vilification of, of death. Hebrew Bible has yeah, a healthy lack of vilification of death. It is a natural part of life. And, and when there is an, a, a child that will outlive you, there's no anxiety. When there's no child that will outlive you, that causes anxiety in the Hebrew Bible. That's, that's a real concern, but not death itself. So it's a very different approach to death than yeah. American culture often has. Yeah. And less so... It is not your individual continuity. It is the continuity of your family line. Right. Which is a much less individualistic approach, much more of like a communal approach or a familial approach to what immortality means. Yeah. I mean, there there are so many, I think, excellent examples of moral ambiguity. We cannot possibly list them all or cover them all. So, you know, I guess to, you know, to our listeners, you know, what are your favorite morally complex or morally ambiguous sci-fi and fantasy works do you think that one genre or the other tends towards ambiguity or tend towards simplicity when it comes to moral issues or is it all or is it all fair game for either genre let us know over email all right so that takes us to pulling out some stuff from the geniza yeah so this month, we each are actually thinking about some books that we read, series of books that we read when we were younger, um, that this week's topic kind of brought back to mind for us. Um, yours was His Dark Materials. So I immediately thought of one of my favorite book series from when I was younger, His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, which has maybe brought been brought newly back into people's awareness with the recent series on HBO, Max, whatever it is we're calling it these days. And was when I was when I was reading this, I think when I was in high school, maybe into college, even though it's YA, I think it is sophisticated enough to attract the interest of adults. What I liked about it was that even though in some ways, it does fall into a very clear good-bad paradigm. It's very clear that Mrs. Coulter is the villain, that the magisterium, the church-like entity that she works for, are evil in the books. 
there's more complexity there because they they very much are motivated by what by doing what they feel is morally right they feel that they are preventing evil from entering the world and they are carrying out atrocity in the name of what they believe to be good and right and um so so to me that is a much more complex dimension than what you often get in series or movies, books, et cetera, that are intended for a younger adult audience. Um, and of course, also it, it challenges assumptions about religion too. It, what I found so compelling about those books was the, the theology that comes through. Um, God is the authority in the series and was really just an angel who maybe it taken more authority for himself angels are beings that exist alongside lots of other beings both visible and invisible and they are really clusters or particular manifestations of dust this substance that is consciousness itself really and the authority eventually is actually imprisoned we learn towards the end and has been manipulated by these other angels so everything that's being carried out on behalf of the authority by the magisterium and the, the human villains, um, it turns out are really, they're really not doing it at the actual will of this entity, which is unsurprising. And Philip Pullman is atheist. This, these books are widely read as a critique on religion in general. I think they're more of a critique of particular kinds of hierarchical organized religion, because I see quite a bit of spirituality in these books. And I'd be very interested to sort of think about what is the, what is the theology that is expressed in them? Because I think there is one, I think the dust very much seems like it fits in with a panentheist kind of view of God or of divinity, that there is this consciousness that seems to have uh, a particular direction, wants there to be good, and that sort of per pervades the entire universe. What were you talking about? So I watched the series on HBO Max recently, thoroughly enjoyed it. And kind of coming back to our Yetzer Hara, Yetzer Hatov motif, you know, the magisterium's trying to keep adults or keep children from becoming sexually aware adults, trying to keep us in the Garden of Eden and not, quote, lose our innocence and become evil. And, and of course, that's actually heavily critiqued. Like, no, 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 you're totally missing the point. That's what being human means is trying to have those feelings and to, you know, do good with them to live with them mm -hmm. so it's right. very Jewish approach that we've been talking about which is like yes. oh no having them in balance yeah it's versus like versus literally severing you off from your soul which makes you basically like the walking dead oh, horrifying yeah. yeah um so that's the version of what kol rock tov kol hayom would be yes yeah tov but like nothing the book by terry pratchett one of my favorite authors called Small Gods, also a critique of hierarchical religion. So there's the Church of and the great god Am is due to have his big return. And in this world, you, the gods only have as much power 
based on the number of the believers they have. So Om returns, but everyone believes in the church, not in the God. So he comes back as a very, very small, frustrated turtle. And he, he lands in the backyard of his only one true believer, brother, brother, who has to basically restore faith in Om and not the church. So it's a very similar critique of hierarchy, like believing in the church versus believing in the God. So that's mm -hmm. like a, just a more humorous, but similar critique. I was thinking of, for me, the series by Pierce Anthony, known for the Xanth anthology, the Xanth series, which is called The Incarnations of Immortality, which I guess is a fantasy series, where he imagines that humanity, or Earth, is run by seven different immortals, death, time, fate, war, nature, good and evil. They're actually the seven divisions of the light side, Nox, who is the, the, the dark side, is their um, equal and opposite Im immortal, who just kind of like they're the background. They're kind of each co-equal and opposite Nox. So the first book is called On the Pale Horse. What I loved about them was that it was this very interesting sort of portrayal of a world where kind of these forces were sort of like taken on by mortals who kind of fall into the job of one of these immortals including the job of Satan. So in the first five books, Satan is the villain, the bad guy. And Anthony had no intention of making book six, let alone book seven, which is about God and seven's about Satan. But when he finally agreed to write the book about Satan, he realized that what he wanted to do was how to take everything he written about the character of Satan, which felt like pure evil, but then have you reread it again and realize you didn't fully understand what was going on, nor their intent. So he kind of gives it, gives everything he ever did more nuance, more context, and makes what you thought was evil into a much more morally ambiguous motive. So it was a clever retcon of a whole pentilogy, pentilogy? Of a whole series of five books, whatever the word is. I recently wanted my kids to read the first book, On a Pale Horse, and they tried, they said they didn't like it, I said, no, no, it's very good. It's very good. I will reread it. And I reread it. And it's not very good. So I still love them, but they're not perhaps the best written exemplars of good dialogue you might find in YA literature. But I actually even made a piece of jewelry based on one of the characters. I made a ring based on the character Times book. I have, I have a snake ring that I made because of the book. I went to a jeweler and had it custom made. It was wow. very interesting. I was very into it. Very. Well, I thought you were going to say that you like went and forged metal, which I was. Excited. No, they forged it for me. Oh. No, I bought the snake ring, had him carve it in certain ways, put in certain gemstones, and I wore that ring for many years. <laughs> so that's what I got from the Geniza this month. That concludes our ninth episode of Sacred Realms: Living in the Gray Beyond Good and Evil. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a Jewish lens and come back to hear more. And our next episode, as always, will come out in about one month. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and emails so far. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And me, Pepperstone. And me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone.
This episode was recorded on Squadcast and edited using Descript. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions by writing to us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. May the Mafarshim be with you.